Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. So, hey, Saloni, how are you doing today? I'm good. Um, just chilling at home. <laughs> That's great. Uh, you know, COVID times. Um, I wanted to go ahead and ask you, could you give us just kind of a short bio and what you're interested in? Okay, yeah. So um, so I'm Saloni Datani. I'm a uh, PhD student. I study the genetics of mental health. Um, I also write for a bunch of um, outlets on various science topics. Um, and I, I'm an editor of a new magazine that I founded with some friends um, called Works in Progress, which kind of we, we publish writing on um, research on progress and ideas to make the future better. That's great. Um, I want to go ahead and get started and just, just ask you, um, I get the sense that science maybe works a little bit less well than it did in the recent past. Do you have a mm -hmm. sense around that um, and, and any thoughts about it? Um, so I guess I kind of uh, see it the other way almost. Um, I think in recent years we've had uh, the kind of replication crisis has um, right. exposed a lot of bad research um, in, in the past. And the, the movement that's come out of that, the open science movement, has, I think, made a lot of um, quite useful, important changes. Um, so I think that science is getting better. Um, but there are, there are definitely things that, uh, can still be improved quite a lot. Gotcha. And, and what are some of those areas where you think the biggest improvements can be made? Um, so one of the, one of the most important, um, ones is probably peer review. Uh, so peer review is essentially the, um, the kind of acts of getting a paper through editors and through other scientists before it's shared with the rest of the world. Um, and um, so I think that um, the reason that that doesn't work so well is that the way that uh, studies get filtered doesn't always work um, according to plan. So sometimes we'll have um, reviewers who are incentivized by um, you know personal personal gain in the sense that like since they don't get financially compensated for reviewing a paper they might end up trying to use the system for for their own benefit by telling the researcher to cite their own work or um, by rejecting papers that contradict their findings and things like that um, so I think that's that's a big area that could be improved Gotcha. And do you have any ideas around that? I know in a recent piece, you mentioned a computer science journal that had some interesting mm -hmm. ideas around that. Yeah. So um, I mentioned a, uh, a journal called JOS, um, the Journal of Open, Open Science, I think. Um, and uh, they have a kind of journal that works through GitHub. So what happens is cool. um, people submit 
their work through GitHub with like the software code along with the paper. Um, and the reviewers of the paper will make comments on their code and will make comments on the manuscript that you can then read after um, after the 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 paper is published. So you can look back at what edits were made according to the um, reviewers comments. And that's quite different from um, general peer review, which is, you know, it's it's very opaque. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes and you don't have good metrics um, to find out how the piece has changed over time and the kind of skills that the reviewers have had and things like that. That's really cool. You wrote recently that um, many lines of evidence suggest that high impact journals, and these are journals which are said to be highly reputable and have a wide reach, accept papers with similar or weaker, weaker methods that low impact journals do. Um, so is it just like kind of a status thing? What's going on there? And I know you mentioned a path forward there, but um, could you just talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, sure. So so I think that uh, it's not clear whether um, high impact journals are accepting papers that are just like this at the same level as low impact journals or actually at lower levels. Um, and I think that if, if it is the case that they're really accepting papers that are lower quality, it might be, um, I, that might be a result of just trying to get this research out to the most people. So it's kind of like a clickbait situation where you want to uh, gotcha. you want to drive views and citations by publishing something that's new or unexpected. Um, and I think that's that can kind of go um, that can kind of go wrong because if, if we have like coherent theories of how certain things work. And we have these like overarching theories that are derived from many different results um, over time. And if you've found something that's like new and unexpected, it probably has some kind of impact on what else we know about the field. So lots of knowledge is kind of connected to each other. And if something's wrong, then it might imply that lots of other things are wrong as well. Um, and so I think that you know, when, when we see things that are like new and unexpected, we should not just wonder if they overturn the theories that we already have, but we should also wonder whether those results themselves um, are really legitimate or reliable. Gotcha. So, so it's something where this is like a really new hot topic. This is really interesting. And so, yeah. you know, and we want people to be citing this. And so it's not, okay, interesting. Um, yeah, it seems like a real problem and not an easy one to get around. Right. Um, I guess the way that I would kind of look at it is um, thinking much more about theory, um, thinking about how things are connected to each other, like different levels of knowledge and um, trying to explicitly reward novelty less. So a lot of um, journals will, you know, explicitly say that they're looking for new, new ideas or um, kind of they're not interested in replications. Um, they're not interested in people using the same data set more than once and things like that. Um, gotcha. So that's a big problem. And I think sort of removing those explicit kind of encouragements for novelty and focusing much more on like creating high quality data that we can reuse over and over again is a better idea. Gotcha. I think that's a really good idea. Um, I, I wanted to stick on the, the science for a little bit and talk about kind of zero in and some of your work. Um, I, I know you're working on getting a PhD in mental health genomics. Is that correct? Yeah. 
Great. Um, so what do people, lay people, like, like what's common knowledge in your field that most lay people just don't realize at all? Um, so I guess, I guess one thing is um, understanding uh, what heritability means. So lots of people will say, um, well, I guess w- when you talk to, you know, a regular person who's not very familiar with the science, they might say, you know, that somebody has inherited something from their father um, they've inherited their bad traits, or maybe they'll, they'll go the other way and they'll think that it's all because of the person's upbringing and so on. Um, and I think the reality is kind of somewhere in between. So in, in my field, we talk about um, this concept called heritability, which is um, the extent to which the differences between us are influenced by the differences in our genes. Um, and for, for many um kind of mental health conditions such as schizophrenia and autism, those things are very influenced by, um, like our, the differences between us are highly influenced by the differences in our gen- genetics. Um, and that's something that's not very well known. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that those things can't be changed or that there is no um, sort of way to go forward with it. So lots of like, you know, that you might have some new medical treatment that changes um, changes people's behavior and it can sort of shift the, the levels of um, psychiatric conditions in the whole population, for example. So gotcha. there's still, so if we're talking about like differences between people, those are highly influenced by our genetics, but we can still change the levels in the whole population. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. It's, it's really interesting. Um, I remember reading a I just finished a, it's a psychiatry textbook. It's on neuroscience of psychiatry. It's for psychiatry residents. Um, and they have a chapter on genetics and they talked about heritability and for schizophrenics and they did twins, people with schizophrenia. And they had twin studies. Um, and it, what surprised me was it, it wasn't hundred percent. It was like mm-hmm. some twins can get schizophrenia and, and their, their twin will not. Um, right. Yeah. So I think that maybe that's an example that feeds in there. I don't know. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so I, so what happens in um, the way that we estimate, like what, uh, uh, what the heritability of some trait is, um, is by comparing how similar identical twins are to how similar fraternal twins are. So even like, even within identical twins, they might still have lots of unique experiences that they have. They might go right. to different schools or have different friends, and those kinds of things can still influence their lives. Um, and then they're also like random things that can happen during the development of their their brains or the, the kind of life experiences that they have early on. So lots of things can influence whether two identical twins are like how similar they are to each other. But if we're comparing identical twins and fraternal twins, then you kind of get this difference that you can tease apart because you know that identical twins share pretty much all of their right. genetics, whereas fraternal twins share only half half of that. Really, that's really interesting. Um, so I wanted to move on now um, from genetics and just take a complete right left hand turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about works work in progress? Excuse me, works in progress. Uh, how you started the online? It's online magazine, correct? You guys, do you do any right. other multimedia with it? Um, no, we don't. Although we did have a we had a video kind of conference a few weeks ago. Uh, where we had um, Tyler Cowen, Rachel um, Loudon, Patrick Collison, Stephen Pinker, 
Cool. Um, uh, and I think uh, Stephen Westlake as well. And so that was really cool, just talking, having conversations about um, topics that they were interested in. Definitely. So how'd you get started? Um, and have you been in, interested in kind of progress studies for a while? Um, so, so it's sort of, there are kind of two levels to how this started. The first is that we were inspired by um, Tyler Cowan and Patrick Collison's um, piece um, in the Atlantic a few years ago um, on, you know, uh, that we need a, uh, we need a new science of progress. Um, so that was, that was a big um, influence on deciding to get started with this. Um, but in fact, me and Sam Bowman, who um, kind of jointly founded this, had the idea for it um, pretty much, I think, a year before that. And we kind of came to that conclusion from different perspectives. So he was interested in um, trying to get more interesting, thoughtful ideas into the world. I think he he had the he had the idea that like um, people on social media often get piled on for sort of trying to think things through in a kind of rational, thoughtful way. So somebody's just trying to start out with thinking about some topic and, right. um, and you know, getting piled on is not the best way to advance <laughs> our knowledge of something. So, so he noticed that lots of people were moving away from social media into private chat rooms um, like group chats and like personal spaces, sub stacks that are only available to their followers and so on. Um, so what we were interested in, what, what we were interested in was kind of bringing, uh, sort of getting those thoughtful ideas, um, uh, sort of putting them all together and then getting them out into the world again. Um, and I think for me, the motivation was, was quite different. So I was quite frustrated with the way science was communicated in, in public. So the way that statistics is presented by journalists or how we think about um, how things, whether things cause each other, um, and also just kind of explaining academic jargon to the general public, I think is something that lots of people struggle with. But there's lots of knowledge in science that could be really useful to the rest of the world if they knew about it. And I think that's something that we've kind of learned in the last year. So getting knowledge from epidemiology and immunology into the wider world has helped people in other fields like economics and so on to develop incentives to produce vaccines at scale and things like that. That's great. I, I really like that. And one of my favorite questions, which I, I just ask you is, you know, what do you understand in your field, this common knowledge that, you know, lay people understand? Mm -hmm. I, I came up with that. I was at my, my wife, she's a psychology researcher. We were at a, her, like her party for her department. And um, I was just, and I was talking to an academic there who's quite older. And I asked him that question. And he told me this answer and it just like blew my mind. You, you know, and he's like, yeah, everyone knows this, <laughs> but I, I know lay people do not understand this. Right. Um, it seems like a real problem. Is it that journalists just don't have enough time? You know, they're on a tight deadline. It's like, I got to get this out in 10 minutes and, you know, I'm just going to throw something up there. I know Scott Alexander has a great post where he talks about, uh, you know, it, this one study talked about by six different outlets and they all drew different conclusions. Um, oh, that's funny. Yeah. It, it's, um, yeah. What do you think is going on there? So I think that I think that part of it is that most journalists don't have training in um, statistics and like, <laughs> straight up they 
they they don't have the knowledge of like what makes good research or what questions to ask scientists when they're reporting the news. Um, and that's that's quite a big problem. So I think that one thing that we do differently is that most of the people who write for us are actually academics or gotcha. like myself, I'm kind of used to being in the science field. And uh, like I and lots of people that I know, we regularly talk to people in different fields about what's going on in our work. So having that experience helps you a lot in trying to um, figure out how to communicate things easily. Gotcha. So you, you've kind of been in both places, you kind of understand it. Right. Um, I want to move on a little bit. So, you know, the title of the magazine, Works in Progress, what do you generally think about tech stagnation? You know, where do you fall in this camp? Um, do you think things are slower? Do you think we're, yeah, um, we, we are. So I think it's sort of, uh, I'm not really convinced that there's um, that much stagnation. I think in the last few decades, we've seen huge um, improvements in a bunch of things. So um, sort of sharing knowledge is a big one. Um, I think like the um, increasing the access of the internet has been like a huge, a huge gain that people don't like see for what it is. So, um, you know, people used to have to go to libraries to find out very basic information, read through loads of books just to find out like the details of when a particular thing happened in the past or um, what happened um, w between people. Whereas now you can kind of search for these things online and find the, them out in a few minutes. Um, so that's a big difference. Um, and I think another one is kind of services, things like Airbnb and Uber um, have, I think, made a huge impact on lots of people's lives, made travel a lot easier. Um, and it's hard to it's kind of fun to think about what the next like Airbnb or whatever will be. Um, so that's something that like, that I think has gone right. And then of course there's also like biomedical research I think has improved so much in the, in the last few decades, um, like gene editing. And then obviously vaccine research has, has massively improved. Um, yeah. So I think those are, those are three big areas where um, I think there's been the most change. Gotcha. That makes sense. And you wrote a review of Enlightenment now. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, um, so Enlightenment now is the, um, I guess, recent, most recent book from um, Stephen Pinker, um, kind of focuses on um, how much progress has been made in various areas of human life, um, and how those have changed over time and what we know about, um, or how we can expect them to change in the future. Um, and I thought it was, it was a really good book. Um, lots of information there that most people don't really know about. Um, so I think for me, it was, it was not very new because I'd been kind of following that kind of, uh, research for a while. Um, but for the general public, I think most people don't know that poverty has declined in a big way. Or most people don't know that like deaths from traffic accidents or, um, from like, um, homicides and things like that have declined over time. Um, so kind of getting that information out there and explaining the causes or how we know that that's happened is is very important. And I think it's something that the book does quite well. Definitely. Yeah. The, just even the infant mortality stats, it's just, it's pretty right. mind blowing the progress you made. They, you know, yeah. that, that really matters. I mean, yeah, people like the, I, I, know, I remember reading a few reviews where people just kind of brush this off and like, man, that's kind of a big deal. Um, right. Exactly. 
but it, it's really quite interesting. Um, so going off of that, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the direction we're going right now? It sounds like you're pretty optimistic. Um, so I guess it kind of depends on what we're talking about and like the time scale that we're looking at. So I think um, in the next few years or maybe the next couple of decades, there are things that I'm worried about, um, particularly things like climate change, but also kind of thinking about politics and what's happening in like um, big dictatorships, um, India, China, Myanmar, um, Turkey, places like that. And it, it's, it's, I think, difficult and like worrying because you don't know how long those things will last. I guess in history, there have been lots of dictatorships that have lasted many decades. Right. Um, so it, it's, it's hard to see how that could improve um, quickly in a big way. So that's something I'm worried about a lot. Um, but then of course, there's also lots of things that I'm optimistic about, particularly um, technological progress. Excellent. I really like that. Um, are you down for a kind of a little bit overrated, underrated? I stole this blatantly yeah, from sure. Tyler Cowen. Sure. Awesome. Uh, so epigenetics, overrated, underrated, and maybe, you know, a little bit why? Um, so I think I think it's, it's overrated in the way that the public understands it, but the actual science of it is underrated. Um, so... So just to kind of give an overview to your listeners, epigenetics um, refers to things around and above the genome. So um, when you have your DNA in your cells, um, these are like huge, really long molecules and they don't fit together, that they can't just be kind of open um, all the time. So they're kind of usually condensed into cells. um, And the way that that condensing is done is with these other proteins that are attached to them. And these proteins have little signatures on them that um, that can be changed and stuff. And those signatures allow the cell to know which genes to turn on and which genes to turn into proteins. So that's a really important feature because it means that you can, um, so different cells will be using different genes at different times. Um, and it helps you to create um, certain pr- uh, proteins in your in your cells that are needed at a particular time for some f- function. Um, and I think what's wrong with the public understanding of that is that people assume that um, that what that means is that your genes don't really matter and what matters is your environment and how those how environmental um, factors influence your epigenome and determine which genes to turn on and off. And I think that's that's quite misguided. Um, the main reason for that is that your epigenome is um, substantially influenced by your genome. So your gotcha. genes determine in a big way which um, which sort of signatures are on those little proteins that tell genes to turn on and off. And also, it sort of works in a very um, mechanistic way. So it's it's like a domino effect where you have this one gene turn on this one gene produces a protein, that protein does something, and then that protein gives a signal to turn on another gene. And the, the, the whole process just goes on and on. So you might you might have like one thing happen and then there's a knock-on effect that means that lots of other genes are turned on to produce some kind of function. So, um, and like going back to my own field of, uh, of genetics, if we look at identical twins and fraternal twins, it turns out that they 
show that like a lot of your epigenome is influenced by genetic differences between people. Gotcha. Um, so the epigenome does matter and it is influenced by the environment, but not in the way that people think that it is. Interesting. That's, I, that's really interesting. It's well put. The human genome project, overrated, underrated? Um, I think underrated, even though people rate it very highly, I think it's still underrated um, because it kind of made a, it made a big impact on um, genetic research in the future. So, so this is a project that began in the 19, early 1990s um, and it was kind of developed um, as a way to find out the sequence of the whole human genome. Um, and people didn't really know like how that would be important or like they didn't know the details of why it would be important, but they thought that it was. And they kind of, I think the thing that's important about the project itself is the way that um, scientists worked on it. So I think in the, in the early years of the project, there were um, kind of two main camps of scientists working on this project. So there was one group of scientists that were um, kind of publicly funded, and they wanted the data from the project to be shared with the wider world. So they wanted all the data to be available. They wanted people to be able to look up somebody's um, um, genetic sequence so so that everyone knew what the human genome was like. Whereas there was another camp of people um, who were interested in kind of commercializing the project. So they wanted to be able to patent genes um, and what that means is you wouldn't know the sequence of a particular gene unless you use the patent, which is oh boy. you know kind of ab absurd to think about now. Um, but it was it was I think common in some other um, related fields like agricultural genetics and stuff like that. Um, it used to be common in those areas. Um, so so there was kind of a clash between these two camps of scientists, and eventually the people who were on the kind of public data sharing side of the side of that battle kind of won out in the in the ideas movement. Um, so they kind they convinced um, they sort of started this movement where during the project everyone was required to share anything that they found um, if they used public funding with the rest of the world. So every single day if you like on a daily basis, you were expected to share any genetic information that you found out about any gene. And that's been really influential on um, genetic projects that have happened after, after that. So there are like tons of genetic databases now where you're expected to share lots of information about the results that you found how you found them and so on. And so people can use lots of this information to find out about like a particular gene in loads of different ways that other people have already um, researched those genes. And I think that's a really important thing because it saves a lot of time. It means that you don't have to constantly be looking for the same things over and over again because you know that somebody else has already found out about them. Gotcha. That's really cool. It, it sounds like yeah, they, they came around to a really good method and it's established a cool culture within the field right. where, where people are open to sharing. It's not like, oh God, I'm going to patent this gene and you know you can't see it. Yeah, exactly. It. Um, that's a good norm. Uh, so Steven Pinker, overrated or underrated? Um, so underrated, I guess I'm a big fan. Um, uh, I think that his kind of body of work is just really impressive and like 
big. And um, so he's written about lots of things like genetics, language, history, um, cognitive psychology, and lots of things that like are explained in a way that is that kind of makes sense, but it's also understandable on various like levels of of the science. So I think um, I guess if you read his if you read his books or listen to his interviews, whenever people ask him a question, he'll sort of break it into components and kind of answer them one by one and then put the whole thing together. And I think that's really useful because it helps you to understand how to think about a problem, not just what to think about the problem or what the answer is. It, it helps you think about the, it helps you think about um, solving new problems. Gotcha. So he's got a really good process of breaking things that, and, he, right. and, and, and answering the question he's teaching you how to almost do that in a way. Yeah, exactly. Really cool. That's an awesome skill. Um, Vic's, Victor, and I'm going to butcher his last name. Is it Zidanov? I, I'm not sure. I think it's Janov. Janov. Um, okay. So this is a, um, I think Ukrainian scientist. Um, he was a, uh, he was a big deal in the um, program to eradicate smallpox. Um, I would say he's very underrated, um, primarily because not many people, if anyone knows really who he is, um, but also what he did made a very big impact on the world. So um, he convinced the World Health Organization um, to develop a program to eliminate smallpox. Um, and the way that he did that is is really interesting because um, he kind of had a background in epidemiology and public health. And he himself was involved in eliminating um, smallpox in the Soviet Union and um, in places in Central Asia. So he had a lot of expertise in the actual process of um, elimination. And also he had his own background as a virologist. So he knew that like um, it would be easier to eradicate smallpox than a lot of other diseases because it's a disease that's limited to humans. It's You don't have to worry about it coming back from other animals. Um, but also because um, there were new techniques available to store and administer vaccines um, in a way that would make it easy to um, inoculate people in poor areas of the world where transport is not that efficient. Gotcha. That's really cool. Um... Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's surprising no one we, we haven't heard about him. You know, I, I know right. you read a piece on him, but it's really cool um, and, and inspiring. Um, Saloni, that's all the questions I had, and I, w- I wanted to thank you for coming on. Are there any parting thoughts you'd like to leave us with, and and where can people find you? I know we mentioned works um, in progress. Yeah, um, so I guess people can mostly find me on Twitter. I'm very responsive on there. Um, I'm also starting out with working with um, Our World in Data on mental health, um, doing some research for them on that. Um, but you can also kind of get me at worksinprogress.co. Um, Excellent. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.